Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're wrapping up our conversations about real-world cults. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, one minor piece of news is that maybe you can hear a slight difference, people, because Matt and Mm -hmm. Scott have now got improved audio equipment since we've been recording remotely we've had to get to grips with the recording online and using more technology and hopefully it'll be slightly improved on this episode to previous ones so yeah we're back to using the microphones that we used when we met in person but we're still recording remotely for a while i was using a blue snowball microphone that i bought myself a while back and i don't know what's happened just in the last month or so it just seems to be falling apart or something the sound quality on the last couple of episodes sounded well dodgy hmm. I'm, I'm quite proud of myself that after only about four hours worth of effort and correctly putting the pentagram in the right configuration and black candles in the right places i managed to get the fucking thing to work on my computer because boy was that a headache <laughs> matt has mastered technology <laughs> no, i just got lucky <laughs> and what else has been going on things were happening Well, as we record last weekend. Yeah, we had this wonderful virtual convention that our listeners organised, which was the Good Friends of Jack's Con Elias, which took place over the weekend of the 10th to the 12th. Well, actually, in our time zone, this, I think, caught all of us out because it was organised by an Australian initially. It, It actually took place from the 9th to the 12th. So we had three and a half days of gaming. It felt like being at a regular con. It was running a game, frantically prepping for the next one, running a game, <laughs> frantically running, uh, prepping for the next one. And then... Yeah. It felt like a n- normal con to you, Matt, because you didn't leave your room. I know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Matt at numerous residential conventions when he rents a chalet and he just stays in the chalet and everybody, you know, comes to him. Living the dream. <laughs> yeah, why not? I did manage a personal best. Of the four games that I ran, three of them ran with five minutes to spare, and then I made up with it on the last one and overran by one and a half hours. So I finished at at, uh, half one in the morning on Monday morning. Of course you did. You finished three games under time, Matt. Yeah, I know. The stars are right. But yeah, the whole weekend was a fantastic success. We had... Uh, I think it was over 50 games running. We had something like 120, 130 players. Everything went really, really smoothly. So I would like to say thank you very much to the people who actually did all the work. We cannot take any credit for this because, I mean, short of Matt and myself running a few games, we didn't really do anything. This was all kicked off by Orbital Axolotl on our Discord server and organised by Transhuman and uh, iPoned P- uh, MC. Sorry, I'll get this right eventually. Uh, let's just call him Christopher because that's his real name. So thank, thank you very much, Chris, and thank you very much, Benza, for all the hard work you put in on this behind the scenes. I popped into the staff room from time to time and saw just how much you were doing in order to make all this happen, and it was phenomenal. And this week I've been listening to a couple of other podcasts. Uh, the first one I'll give you a quick shout-out to is our friends at the Miskatonic University podcast, interviewing our good friend Mr. Mike Mason, which was very interesting. And the second one was none other than Mr. Scott Dorwood on expeditions to the Grizzly Peaks. I can imagine oh, yeah. Scott on an expedition to some Grizzly Peaks <laughs> out in the wilds. Grizzly Adams, Grizzly Dorwood. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was very good, Scott. I thought it was interesting stuff. Oh, thank you, yeah. We need to get him a Davy Crockett hat now. This is a podcast that is run by a chap called Andy Goodman, who is based out in the US, but he's British originally, he's English. And he does actual play stuff. He's been doing Masks of Neolithotep. He's uh, been running Blackwater Creek recently. But he also, every now and then, interviews people. So, yeah, he invited me to come along and we chatted, oh gosh, I think for about an hour and a half in the end. It was It was certainly a long discussion. And yeah, a lot of fun. So yeah, thank you very much. And I shall put a link in the show notes. 
And of course, as the uh, the real world situation that shall not be named is continuing uh, apace, uh, we are continuing to release our back of lockdown specials. I think I've done more reading in the last couple of months than I have in the last few years. Can I just say that back of lockdown specials makes it sound like we're locking down our backers? And? <laughs> I'm not saying all of them would be averse to that. I hear there's a market for it, so... <laughs> it's all part of our secret plan, and I think that leads us into our main topic of cults. <laughs> oh, marvellous segue. <laughs> We've spent the last few episodes talking about all sorts of aspects of cults, from what a cult is to what kind of person leads a cult, how they recruit some of the things they might believe. And now we're going to dig in a little more into the nuts and bolts of what what life is actually like for people within cults and how some of them might get out of it. Just if anyone offers you flavour aid, don't take it. Yeah. Hold out for the, the good stuff. Kool-Aid or nothing. <laughs> Earlier, we talked a little bit about how cults tend to have charismatic leaders. That's pretty much part of the definition of a cult. But there do seem to be different structures within cults, different ways that they operate, that it's not always just a leader and then a whole bunch of people following them. There is usually some kind of hierarchy. So there's often an inner circle, people who are trusted by the cult leader and perhaps are more involved in the decision-making process. Maybe there are levels within the cult that you advance through as you, you gain more and more access to the secret knowledge. Kind of like going up levels in D&D, except more expensive. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a level-based system. Yeah, I mean, perhaps there are elders within the cult, as there might be within a, a religion, sort of trusted advisors to the leader or people they delegate stuff to directly or who, who take decisions as kind of a council. We just call them old ones. I was listening to a TED talk, which I'll link to from the show notes, by a woman whose name I've just forgotten, who uh, grew up in an evangelical Christian cult in California, founded by former hippies. And she was talking there very much about how there was a charismatic leader, but at the same time, there were all these elders who had direct control over the daily lives of the other cult members and would make decisions for them, would... I, I don't know that she actually talked about tribunals, but certainly would be responsible for punishing them or enforcing the social mores of the cult. And also for things like covering up scandals, because she talked about the fact that there was a lot of abuse going on within the cult and that it was the elders who sort of kept a wrap on that. I mean, I would imagine, like most organisations, it's going to be down to a question of scale. So if you've got a small group, like I think with the Manson family, so with Charles Manson and his followers, I don't think there was too many of them. So, you know, from what I understand, there was him and you know, there's kind of like the boss and then the employees, you know, it's kind of like a small operation. Whereas if you go to some larger ones, you know, they've got perhaps hundreds or maybe more, but certainly hundreds, then you probably need some kind of structure. There's there's the a leader, a charismatic leader, and he or she is going to kind of test members out. There's going to be one that's been there longer, that have become more trusted to show they're loyal. They've been through things. They've got history. And naturally, they're kind of like uh, assistant managers, if you like. Yeah. And down at the bottom, you've got kind of got the, I mean, I'm kind of comparing it to a supermarket, if you like. Mm. You've got the shelf stackers who are there on like minimum wage. And they might not even really know what the, the deal's about. You know, they're just along because they think it sounds good and they've kind of bought into some of the beliefs. But they're not really necessarily on board with what the, you know, the people at the boardroom are actually you know, what their real goals are. And I'd say that this kind of structure is essential to the longevity of a cult as well, because I mean, there's a, a certain very well-known cult whose name we've been avoiding and I'll carry on avoiding, whose leader died a while back, but has continued very nicely in his absence. And that is largely because a lot of the responsibility, a lot of the control of the cult was delegated to other trusted individuals, one of whom stepped up when he died. And perhaps, you know, a number of these people were 
even running things behind the scenes later on as the original cult leader sort of degenerated into ill health and drug addiction and probably wasn't really in a position to to do much more than act as a figurehead i've got to take issue with what you said there scott i think you've shown a, a great lack of knowledge there what you didn't die what you mean is he transcended his mortal yes. form sorry yes. and uh, passed on to a higher level of course so what cult, cult leaders don't die i apologize for my blasphemy there <laughs> whatever next but yeah, I mean, this is something we see with quite a lot of cults, this kind of creepy followers. It definitely fits with the, so the two that I looked at with uh, Jim Jones and Heaven's Gate, that size definitely almost necessitates having this extra level of control that only one or two people are only able to keep control of a small number of people. But then as it grows, then there is a direct proportionality that you need to have x many people to look after x many beneath them right. so jones mm. set up lots of different committees like the planning committees when jonestown was established he had his right hand men and women to do various things for him he had his armed thugs there was say, different groups but ultimately each taking control of a particular aspect of his operation I mean, you mentioned Heaven's Gate in passing there, I and mean, Heaven's Gate was possibly slightly unusual in that nominally at least there were two leaders, weren't there, or at least two people mm. in a, a leadership position. Yeah, I mean, Heaven's Gate came out of originally two people. It was when Applewhite met Bonnie Nettles that she was ultimately the more... I'd say the more spiritual of the two when they first met, that she had a lot of interest in theosophy, spiritualism, and so on. And that really sparked Applewhite's imagination. But ultimately, she passed away, uh, I think it was a good few years after the kind of their operation really got up and running, that they started going uh, from town to town, in some cases picking up members, in other cases being run out of town as crackpots. But their, their group was always fairly small. Mm. But the nature of the message they were preaching, it wasn't going to attract many people. But I think they had, what, 30 to, 30 to 50 members at um, certain points. But even so, that's still two people to look after, like 25 each. That's still fairly small numbers compared to when you look at the size of, say, going back to the other example, Jonestown. That, yeah. Yeah, that they didn't need a structure beneath them because it was almost just, they, well, they, they even referred to it as like a classroom, um, the, the classes that they were teaching. Hmm. Yeah, because with Jonestown, at the end there, they had the best part of a thousand people there, didn't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, they'd been bleeding numbers for a little while. But, yeah, by the time everything went down, they, there was about, well, over 900 people there. I mean, it seems to me like you've got that kind of managerial style of, like, the people at the top and then, like, you know, rungs of control. But also you've got this, this may be in other um, cults, you've got this uh, kind of divide and rule idea that people are afraid to, you know, individual mm. members are kind of afraid to speak to other members. And there's this kind of paranoia that the leader might get told you sort of make transgressions so you don't tell people about things certainly that was the case in the one that i looked at the buddha field with um michelle yeah i think it was just called michelle it was a kind of a hard rule that they didn't really talk to each other or tell each other their problems they'd only confide in him so he had a kind of a like an iron grip over all of them individually and that's kind of like an authoritarian regime to some extent with people mm. being afraid to speak out of turn and so on for fear of it being reported. That sounds very much like people's, for example, fear of surveillance by the Stasi in East Germany. So I think when individuals were abused by the, the leader, they thought it was just them and they thought they were given, you know, he would convince them that it was kind of special treatment that they were getting. You know, and then later on, when they sort of find out, oh, it's not just me, they're like, oh, I wish we'd talked about this sooner. Mm. And the other sort of weird structure that kind of interested me was the one in Nexium, which you know, we mentioned a few times in passing, where they had this whole idea of an inner circle, a sort of cult within the cult. So there was Nexium itself, which presented itself as this sort of combination between a self-help program and a multi-level marketing scheme, where it drew people into this, this rather creepy and controlling form of self-help. But then you reach the inner circle, and they even gave it a different name. It was called DOS or The Vow, this sort of inner cult. 
which was a whole homosexual slavery part of it, the part where they were branding members and exerting sexual control over the, the women who got to that stage. And it was sort of this yeah, self-contained organisation within the organisation. And I think that's something that, if we're looking at this from a Call of Cthulhu point of view, I think is something that we could make use of. In fact, I think we have made use of, at least in one thing that we've written, which mm -hmm. is this idea that you've got an organisation or a cult that does have this inner circle in the centre that has the true teachings. And once you get there, then everything changes for you. Mm, most certainly. The Miskatonic University is not what it seems. <laughs> I mean, that could be a good little scenario right there, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. They are picking up mythos tomes. They do know about mythos, but, you know, they're widely perceived as a, as a good thing. But, um, you know, in your story, they could actually be uh, a front. Uh, yeah, well, the, the library in particular, the Orn Library, they know mm. the true mystical secrets behind the Dewey Decimal System, what those numbers <laughs> really represent. <laughs> Funnily enough, I have done a scenario on that. <laughs> oh, you have, yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, I've played it. Uh, there is actually, um, I think it's in Trail of Cthulhu, the Armitage Inquiry. The Armitage Files? Or? No, it's a group called the Armitage Inquiry, because oh, okay. it stems out of this argument is uh, called Professor Armitage, hero or villain? Because ultimately in the mm. Dunwich Horror, he does do some fairly deplorable things, as we've uh, we've discussed in our uh, previous yeah. episodes looking, uh, mm. looking at the mm. story. It's, yeah, he's been exposed to this. What ends will he go to and how will he use people to either get more information on the mythos or combat it, or is that should be combated in inverted commas? And also, I mean, if we're looking at unusual structures for cults, I mean, there is the idea of self-organising or leaderless cults, which may seem like an oxymoron with the kinds of cults we talked about, but they do pop up from time to time. They're very rare things. But as I've argued in the earlier episodes, I think that they are maybe not becoming the norm, but certainly becoming a lot more popular in the days of the internet and social media, where you do get groups of like-minded people coming together and creating shared delusions, these, you know, creating their own us versus them mentality, their own warped peer pressure, their own really bizarre delusional belief systems. And, mm. yeah, it, to all intents and purposes, they behave like cults just without the charismatic leaders. I just called it Twitter. Yeah. Or given some of the memes going around on Facebook, you could probably lump them in with it as well. I'm thinking very specifically of some of the things I've mentioned, like the anti-vax movement, which, yeah, I think in its refutation of science, it's rabid adherence to completely unprovable beliefs its ostracization of heretics and particularly you know its denial of any evidence from the outside world is you know fantastically cult-like but you can't point to any one person i mean you know maybe in the early days you could have pointed initially to someone like andrew wakefield or jenny mccarthy as leaders but it's spread far beyond there and it has become this self-perpetuating peer-to-peer cult yeah i mean these kind of conspiracy theories that um i would kind of class it as right mm. yeah i mean i would agree they are kind of they've got cult-like qualities i don't know well, whether they fit into the definition of cult or not, I can, I guess, is academic. Um, they're not what I would think of as a cult, but I can kind of see the argument, yeah. Like a sort of, um, yeah, almost like a formless, um, well, like you say, a leaderless cult. Yeah, it's quite a nice idea. Well, and again, I think if we're thinking in terms of Call of Cthulhu, that mm. is the kind of thing that could be really interesting in a modern-day scenario. The idea that as people learn little bits about the mythos, or you know, if you really want to put it in terms of things like the anti-vax movement or QAnon or your know, other sort of decentralized cults like that, perhaps they have misapprehensions about the mythos. Perhaps you know, there are people who've learned little bits here and there and have extrapolated in really wrong-headed and dangerous ways. And these these beliefs are mutating and spreading and people are just reinforcing each other's beliefs online that could become incredibly dangerous 
It's kind of what separates in my mind between a movement and a cult is that a movement is spread by an idea that people can get behind rather than an individual person's message. I mean, they're very close, but well, one takes away mm. that human element. So it's maybe something you can read or something that you can hear. But then you think, oh, yeah, I agree with that and get behind it, whereas you're following an ideal rather than a person in that case yeah except as i said i i think the cultish aspects are the absolute denial of objective reality that sort of self-reinforcement the social self-reinforcement that goes on that is absolutely key to the way cults operate i mean yes all right in a traditional cult you had that charismatic leader but you do have the other members reinforcing each other's ideology and commitment to you know what's going on in in something like the anti-vax movement you have exactly the same thing just without the leadership you you have that peer pressure and that reinforcement so we've talked about how people come to join a cult and how cults operate i mean i guess this is uh th that probably answers the next question which is why do people remain in a cult but i guess once they've kind of bought into an idea and you've been there for a while you become invested in it and you kind of mm. you you're it's almost like having to sort of say well actually all that stuff i've been doing for the past three years was all like totally wrong that's quite hard to admit it's almost like if you know i'm quite left-wing it'd be quite hard for me to suddenly see the light in inverted commas and go well actually i think i've been wrong all this time you know i should sign up to the conservative party i've got mm. friends who are of that persuasion political persuasion it's like mm -hmm. they're not evil well they are really no. um, but <laughs> i was gonna, no, I was gonna not, say no, you had to put a disclaimer in there i'm not trying to make a political mm. point i'm trying to say yeah. that looking at your beliefs everybody's got them looking at your beliefs because there are other people that hold diametrically opposed beliefs to you and you're going to think they're wrong and they're going to think you're wrong you know what i mean it's hard to yeah. look at your beliefs and say well am i actually right it's a guess it's just a matter of opinion is it I think a big part of what you were talking about there is, uh, I think it's an idea that comes out of economics, uh, which is sunk cost. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole idea of putting good money after bad. You've made a bad investment, mm. but you carry on doing so because to cut your losses at that stage would mean that you, you've wasted everything that you've put into it. And I think there is a real element of that in cults, that if you have that moment of realisation at any stage and think, hang on, all of this is bullshit, they're just using me, I've wasted my life, then you have to go yeah. back and look at the fact that you have wasted X many years on something that is just nonsense. Especially if you've, if you've given up your home, you've maybe given up your family, you've stopped talking to relatives, you've changed mm. all your friends, you've got new friends now, you're invested in new friends, you're invested in new ideology. It's going to be very hard to reverse that. You know, a hell of a lot of toe pulling you back. You've got a saying, this is straying dangerously close to my regular day job, <laughs> is in credit that we say that your first loss is always your best loss. So, <laughs> yeah, get the fuck out when you realise you're losing stuff. Hmm. Also, one other thing that you touched upon there, Paul, is the fact that this cult and the people within it have replaced your family. They've replaced all your resisting social structures. And people are fundamentally social animals. We rely on the social connections we make for our sense of self, our sense of well-being, our very sanity. And if we've replaced all the normal structures we have with this toxic, dangerous thing then it's still, regardless of how weird it is and regardless of how dangerous it is, regardless of how abusive it is, it's mm. still going to give us that sense of safety and belonging that we need in order to just be human. And I think there's a, a question here as well, when some of these things are perhaps shown evidently to be wrong. You know, the, mm. the cult leader is exposed as a, a sexual predator or, you know, a murderer or... A bunch of the cultists kill themselves. I mean, maybe that doesn't prove that, you know, maybe that backs up their beliefs. But, you know, how do people confront that as members and actually stay? You can see why they leave, but why do they stay? Denial is a powerful thing. People will, will put up with all sorts of shit because of 
that feeling of safety, that feeling of wanting to maintain the status quo. There may be other underlying reasons. I mean, people stay in abusive relationships, emotionally abusive or physically Mm. abusive relationships outside cults. You know, maybe it's because of a a sense of safety that they don't know what they do outside there. Maybe it is because of some deep-seated insecurity or inferiority complex that they don't believe they deserve any better. And, you know, I think a lot of people within cults are probably trapped in that same kind of mindset. Yeah, they they see all the evidence. You know, the the leader has got feet of clay. There is abuse going on all around them. But do I deserve any better than this? I think it also comes down in a lot of instances probably just to fear is that kind of fear of the unknown. Mm. What happens if I leave? What happens to me when I'm out on my own? I've got I've not got this perceived support network i've not got this replacement family anymore i've got nothing what what the hell am i going to do and that is quite terrifying to a lot of people so there are three things here that i i can sort of see that we've just touched on one is like you say matt the fear of just reprisals and so on or what will happen to me outside on my own the second i'm not a psychologist i can't really get into the whole abusive relationship and why people stay in them but evidently you know we probably all know some people who have been in those relationships and you're like you know why are you staying with that person when they're you know they're mistreating you but evidently that does happen and i feel like Mm. you know cult members probably suffer that as well and third i think there's just almost that disproving or other people disproving what you believe almost cements your belief because it's oh, yeah. like I'm stronger because I you say this is untrue and you've got your proof in inverted commas that what I believe isn't true but I know the real truth I'm better than you because I know really my faith is stronger and that's not limited to colds. I mean, we see that all over the place. Absolutely. I can't remember the details. I'll try to dig it out and put it in the show notes. There was a psychological study done some years back that basically showed that if someone has a belief that is based on inaccuracies and you show them objective evidence that their belief is wrong, this, instead of changing their minds, will actually cement their incorrect beliefs because they'll, mm. they'll react against it. I, I did see a lovely discussion online a while back where someone brought that up to counter someone who said, oh, all you have to do to change someone's mind is show them the truth. And someone pointed to the psychological study. The person in the first place said, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> Case and point. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, we're essentially, we're very emotional animals with a very thin veneer of rationality and intelligence over the top of oh, it, I absolutely. think. Or most of us, you know, most of us are. And also, most of our intelligence is put towards rationalising our emotions and rationalising our instincts instead of the other way around. We can come up with reasons to believe anything we damn well please. We're smart enough to do that. Mm, and, and speaking mm. of belief, I think another strand to this which in our cynicism about cults is perhaps easy to look past and forget about, is that there is perhaps a well-meaning aspect to all this as well, in that if you have a deeply held religious belief, let's say that you believe that the cult that you're part of has some kind of spiritual teaching that will transform the world, that will save people, will bring them life after death or whatever, Mm. then you probably want to try to share that with other people. You probably want to try to hold on to that because it's doing good in the world. The description of evangelism, I remember someone telling me years back, which really stuck with me, is that you believe that you are in a burning building and only you know where the fire exit is. So you will do everything you can to try to get people to that fire exit because you want to save them. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether people don't believe that the building's on fire or that they curse you for doing so or whatever. You know, it is your mm. job to get them to safety. And you know, it's the same thing if you believe that only you know how to save them from eternal damnation once they die. Then you know, you're just trying to show them that fire escape to get them out of hell. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think that that's a big part of cult psychology there as well, that people are clinging on to these beliefs because they believe that they're helping themselves and other people. And certainly some people can get out of a cult 
and then you know be drawn back in um, mm. it's not like once you're out you're out so i was looking at the um, Carlos castaneda tensegrity cult and the, the series of books that he wrote about the teachings of don juan he did form a, a cult around those books. He sold a lot of books, but then he formed this cult. And he had uh, a group of women around him that he called the witches. And there were like three or four of these. And one of them, Amy Wallace, left the cult and hired a private investigator to look into the cult because he was really enigmatic and, you know, really covered up his trail. And when he died, I remember obituaries like... When was that? Kind of early 2000s? I want to say like 2002, something like mm. that when he died, maybe a bit before, maybe, yeah, maybe a couple of years before. You know, I remember newspaper reports saying, reporting on it and saying, we don't actually know how old, how old this guy was. And yeah, we don't actually have any photos of him either, but here's the obit, you know, because um, he had like managed to disguise all this stuff and told various stories about his background and his life. But anyway, this, this woman, Amy Wallace, who got out, hired a private investigator, and this is a phrase you've used uh, numerous times, Scott, that I haven't really come across that much in other places, but it, it was used in the, in the article on this, uh, the love bombing thing, that, mm. that he just basically kind of seduced, if you want for a better word, brought her back into the, into the cult and she just kind of came back in. But because she hired that private eye, you know, we've now got a lot more information. That, that information is still existing so that opened you know the can of worms about the cult without that you know castaneda died and these witches just kind of disappeared and um, nobody's really been able to track down what happened to them and people think they maybe killed themselves they maybe there was whole things about going on long spiritual quests in you know other realms and so on that said I still love the books. They're great. Yeah, uh, yes. If you've got a name like witches, though, I think you have to abide by the unspoken rule that there has to be three of them. Because when should we four meet again just doesn't doesn't sound right. Yeah, that's probably why she left, right? Uh, and I think another part of why people at least stay within cults comes down to that thing we talked about earlier, which is that sort of shared psychosis that develops in some of them, where everyone's delusions feed back on each other. Mm. And the more deluded you are, the more you, you sort of believe all these bizarre things, the more alien and frightening the outside world is going to be. You know, if you told yourself all these stories about what the world actually is and what other people are up to, all these conspiracy theories and the fact that you you are, you know, perhaps the only people who are going to be saved when the comet comes or something like that, then it's it's really hard to break away from all that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a something that is exploited. It's a it's a weakness in human nature that is broadly exploited by all all types of things not just cults but it's that fear of you know the other it's a fear of people from other countries other ethnicities and so on and people exploit that for their own ends don't they mm. um, but definitely within cults that's exploited but speaking of beliefs uh, one thing that i was looking into as as part of my research for this which is something i always find fascinating anyway is when I was thinking about reasons why cults might fall apart or people might leave, I was thinking about the role of prophecy, uh, particularly you know, end-of-the-world prophecies, which we see in an mm. awful lot of cults, and what happens when those do not come to pass. And you know, the history of cults and you know, even more established religions is absolutely filled with such things. The sort of classic that kicked them all off goes all the way back to you know, 1844 uh, with, with William Miller, who was a Baptist preacher in the US, who basically started off the, uh, the Adventist movement and the Seventh-day Adventists you know, still base their beliefs on, on what he preached. But yeah, he he predicted that the second coming would would come and the world be cleansed in fire, and obviously that did not happen. And I love the fact that this is still referred to. It became known at the time, and it's still known as the Great Disappointment. Nah. <laughs> We've all been there. This is something. I mean, you possibly came across in your research matt jim jones one of the reasons he founded jonestown was the fact that he'd predicted that the world would end in when was it 1967 
Yeah, it didn't really actually come up too many times in the research that I did. There was oblique references to that he was paranoid that there was going to be a thermonuclear apocalypse, that World War Three would end the world and everything in that kind of sphere. But everyone that I read that wrote about Jonestown only ever mentioned that in passing. That didn't ever seem to be the focus of, of what they wrote about. Well, I would have thought that that kind of priming would make something like what happened eventually at least a bit more likely in that if everyone was of a mindset that, yes, everything is coming to an end, then I guess that makes mass suicide and murder just that bit easier because all you're doing is going along with prophecy or submitting to the inevitable. Yeah, I mean, I listened because this is one of the... One of the disturbing bits I found during my research that a lot of the the moments of the final meeting that took place in the kind of the communal tent or the town hall tent at Jonestown was recorded. Oh yes, yeah. And it was then found later when the when the authorities went in to raid the place. Um, so I listened to the majority of that because it's been used in a few of the documentaries. Yeah. And no, the the idea of revolutionary suicide was more in counter to the way I interpreted it anyway, was that the whole of Jones's family, the whole of his operation had fallen apart around him because he knew that after the senator or the congressman had been murdered, that the authorities would be coming for them, that they would tear the families apart, the children would be taken away, that they'd all be split up, and that this was Mm. their defiant way of basically saying, screw you, we're going out on our own terms. That as far as Jones was concerned, there were no other options available. They couldn't run to Russia, which was an option that had been discussed previously because he was sure that the Russians wouldn't take them, Mm. that they couldn't go anywhere. They certainly couldn't go back to the US. I mean, He'd been advocating that for a long time and that he'd, he'd literally just backed himself into a corner and there was nowhere else to run. So he decided that if he was going to go out on his own terms, that everyone else, by damn it, was going to go with him. These things are hardly unique. Well, and sometimes they're a bit more comical. Did you ever read about an evangelical preacher in the US by the name of Harold Camping? No, never. No. Camping was famous for repeatedly predicting the end of the world. And he had his own church full of devout believers who would follow his prophecies. And he, his shtick basically was that he would examine every clue in the Bible and sit down and do really complex maths based on all sorts of extrapolations to try to work out exactly when the end of the world would be. Initially, he said that it was going to be in 1994. He published a book in 1992 saying the world was going to end in 1994 i guess it probably didn't but when that failed instead of him saying oh hang on no this is this is wrong he said oh no no i've got the maths a bit wrong it's actually going to end on the 31st of march 1995 and so all his followers just carried on following him because that was the case yeah and sure enough obviously the world didn't end then and he published more research sort of saying oh hang on no no these are the bits of the maths i've got wrong clearly the world is going to end on saturday the 21st of may 2011 and he carried on getting all these donations and the followers and so on just clinging to the idea that this was going to happen you know in a lot of cases people sold their homes and prepared for the end times and it never came about for camping but the world ended in 2013 when he died so you know he stopped making these prophecies but did he make any predictions about 2020 at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, but the point i guess is that these failures of prophecy did not dissuade his followers and you see this with the jehovah's witnesses as well the Mm. jehovah's witnesses have been predicting the end of the world for over a hundred years they keep coming up with specific well not necessarily specific days but sort of saying it's going to end in say 1917 and it doesn't end and then they come up with another date and at no point has this led to (laughs) the the failure of their church People just accept the fact that this prophecy has failed, we'll hang on for the next one. Yeah. I love the idea that if he was taking different versions of the Bible and running his computations through various combination of words, there are dozens, hundreds of different like, different mm. translations and different versions of the Bible. Like the King James Bible might say it's 2020. The New International Standard Version might say it's uh, 2012. <laughs> the Gutenberg Bible might say it was 1511. There's all different dates to pe- that you could get out of this using different versions. So what if you transpose mm. that to a mythos tome? Yeah. And mm. that it was a hidden message in there. It's kind of almost getting into Ninth Gate territory, really. It's the bits of the message are in certain versions of the of the Mythos tomes, and you've just got to have the right combination or the right particular translation to get the message that's really the truth. 
I don't think I can let it pass. The mention of camping in America, this chap. Yeah. We've all seen the, the Peter Cook sketch, right? Which one? Uh, well, The End of the World. No. Oh, it's ringing a bell. I can't remember the specifics. Oh, my God. You need to link to this in the show notes. Yeah. It's basically Peter Cook and a whole bunch of comic stars from the time. And they're all gathered around him. And, you know, we've gathered on this mountaintop. Oh, yes, The end yes, of the yes, world. Yes. Yeah. We're all this wind. Yeah, it's Rowan Atkinson, right? Yeah, at the end, it's just like, oh, well, same time next week, lads. <laughs> yeah. All right. And they yes. all just march off. <laughs> Which yeah. sums it up. I've not seen that. Yeah. Oh, it's it's genius. Harold Camping really was the real life version of that. I mean, he was after that, though, right? Because that was, uh, I think that was early 80s, maybe yeah. late 70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's where he got his inspiration. You never know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he watched that and thought it was true. This obsession with eschatology seems to be cyclical, though. It was a huge mm. thing in the 1970s. I, I guess the Cold War probably brought a lot of it to people's minds anyway. But there was a book I'd, I'd forgotten about until I was reading around this, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, who was an evangelical Christian who wrote this book about biblical prophecy and the fact that the world was going to end before, I think he said 1988. He was coming up with all sorts of biblical reasons for this. And what I've forgotten, I mean, my parents had a copy of this book. What I've forgotten until I, I, I read an article about it was this was the best-selling non-fiction book of the 1970s in the US. Wow. So this obsession with eschatology has been very mainstream for a long time. And we saw a lot of it come up, I think, in the late 90s as we came up to the millennium. And then there was the whole 2012 nonsense with the main calendar where people, I mean, that was probably a bit more playful, but, you know, some people took that seriously. We just seem to go through cycles where it's not just the cults. I mean, it seems to become a mainstream belief that we are in the end times. Everything is coming to an end. Yeah, definitely. And I think that is just possibly because of the dominance of Christianity as a religion in the West is such a fundamental part of our inbuilt belief systems that it's very easy for cults to to sort of absorb that and dial it up to 11. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not putting it down, but I think there's an aspect of that in the whole Extinction Rebellion um, environmental cause at the moment. Mm. I'm not trying to undermine the science of it, but I would say there's an almost an added appeal of that because it is yeah. this kind of almost apocalyptic thing that's going to you know destroy our world is going to destroy the way we live and so on that i think for some people buy into that because of that attraction you know i just want to make it clear i'm not demeaning that i think the the whole science of climate change is real um but um but no it's the attitude that goes with it i understand that yeah there's a subreddit i visit sometimes called collapse which is for people who are looking at various generally scientific studies and articles indicating various aspects of our society from biodiversity to climate change to economics are very vulnerable and that certain things are indicating that they may be about to collapse and and preparing for that and yeah i think you're right that there is certainly reading that subreddit there is an almost sense of excitement about it that is quite creepy well we've touched upon the idea of what happens when someone leaves a cult or maybe the fear of what happens when they leave a cult but it was actually one thing that came up in my research again with Jones, that there was quite an interesting development that happened when people started getting out of the People's Temple. And I'm wondering if, uh, whether this is a parallel in any of the groups that you've researched, that one of their key members, in fact, their lawyer, a uh, man by the name of, probably going to butcher his pronunciation of his name, Tim Stowen, um, he managed to get out of the People's Temple in 77. And along with other members or former members, that is, they got together and formed their own group called Concerned Relatives, who were then campaigning mm. and lobbying and advocating for the authorities to step in and say, look, this is what's happening with this uh, this group, this cult. For God's sake, intervene and get uh, get our friends and other relatives out of there. And while it it's probably not the right word to label to them, but they, they did form their own group, or not quite their own cult, but it was they went from one group immediately to another, Almost like a support yeah. network is, is probably a bit more a better way of uh, describing it. But it was, it kind of links back to my uh, what the point I made earlier about there's that fear of what happens when you get outside that you're completely on your own. That if more people get out, you can at least find some kind of comfort and support with people that have yeah. also got out with you. 
And I found that that was quite interesting that they still managed to keep together, even though they were outside away from the cult leader. Well, I guess you want to try and almost strike back or either stop people joining it or help the people that are already members, I guess, as well as uh, helping yourself. Mm There's also, you know, the parallel that we mentioned in an earlier episode between cult membership and addiction. And I guess that almost becomes something like a 12-step program or the equivalent for former cult members. And certainly I mean, in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, there is this idea that in sobriety you replace one obsession with another. And so I perhaps see that in what you're talking about there, Matt, that mm. by replacing the obsession with the teachings of the cult with an obsession with trying to break other people's uh, or or help other people out of the cult then that is replacing a negative obsession with a positive one yeah yeah Hmm. is that something is there some similar experience that you found with the groups that you looked at certainly with the holy hell documentary the buddha field you know the the people that got out of that they did form a i'm not sure they formed a I guess a loose coalition, a group, a sort of support group. And they did go back and at the end of it, they do get, because the the leader has moved, I think it's to Hawaii, I think I want to say. Yeah. And, um, you know, they go and confront, well, this is one of the things that bugged me a little bit. They don't really confront him. They they do film him and talk to him. But it's almost like he's still got a hold over them. Mm. I think it's one of these cases that it's a real world, uh, documentary so if it were a fiction that would be a, they would have put a more dramatic ending in whereas it is you know it wasn't a dramatic ending but that's fine because it's, it's a real world thing and also what we were talking about in i think the first episode where we're talking about the kinds of people who decide what is a cult or take action against cults that the anti-cult organizations tend to fall into a few broad categories. Yes, there are the ones that are associated with, say, competing religions who see cults as heretical. But a big part of it is exactly what you just said, Matt, that it's former cult members. I think as well, one thing that... I, I don't know. Maybe this is more our generation, Paul. I'd be interested in seeing whether this applies to you, Matt. When I think of people leaving cults, I think about deprogrammers. This was a big thing, particularly in the 1970s, where as people became more worried about cults in the the wake of initially the Manson family, but then obviously the People's Temple, people wanted to try to get their loved ones out of cults. So there were these organisations, you know, usually small groups, maybe individuals, who would set themselves up as deprogrammers, who would sometimes take criminal action or certainly extreme actions to kidnap people uh, out of out of the cults they were part of and then sequester them and try to as the name suggests break that programming using i guess some of the same techniques that cults use of that that sense of breaking down the self and rebuilding it Mm. Uh, but it's not something you've really encountered much anymore and reading around it i think that's because there were so many lawsuits against deprogrammers in the 70s and 80s that it just became unviable not just lawsuits but criminal actions because they were kidnapping people they were torturing them it is an occupation in call of cthulhu yeah in the investigator's handbook we have uh, deprogrammers oh yes i've been eyeing them up if i ever get to play a modern day game again that'll be the, uh, <laughs> the occupation i'll jump on <laughs> I can see your player characters deprogramming people, Matt, but usually with like, you know, a thirty-eight revolver or something. Or, but... or blowtorch, yeah. Well, you wouldn't be trying to deprogram them. You'd be trying to get them to join your cult. Yeah. Com si, com sa, tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess that kind of deprogramming, you know, has been sort of taken over with uh, more modern forms of therapy and, you know, helping people to come to terms with their problems and trauma from the experience of being in these cults well that's a big thing yeah and maybe that whole deprogramming is a bit you know like you said it's a bit sort of 70s early 80s you know when you had things like i don't know like est and things like that in the, in the america pretty harsh ways of 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 helping people in inverted mm. commas whereas today <laughs> as i'd say things are better 
Well, nowadays, apparently you have what are referred to as exit counsellors who help people through the process of adjusting to the outside world, but they're not taking that initial stage of sort of physically extracting them from the cult. But it is much more about you know, helping them deal with the um, the trauma because people who leave cults end up having to deal with PTSD, depression, anxiety. They are, in a lot of cases, just not not really able to cope with life outside. And so they do need that psychological support. They need logistical support, perhaps financial support, in order to readjust to normal life. You, you just talked about people that can help you adjust to the outside world scott i think you know we probably all need somebody like that right now <laughs> yeah yeah that, that, there we go oh yeah if there are any exit counselors out there who aren't getting enough work because of uh, the lockdown well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah just just retool your skill set slightly plenty of customers but also, I, the other thing that people who leave cults have to deal with is the fact that the cults themselves may take retributive action against them. I mean, obviously, the People's Temple was an extreme example. You know, when people tried to leave at the last moment, they shot them with assault rifles. But, yeah, I mean, Nexium, for example, would deliberately try to sabotage the reputations and careers of people who left the cult. And, you know, other cults very much do the same thing. Send people around to hassle apostates, um, mm. spread rumours about them, try to destroy their careers. Yeah, it's, it, it can be really quite sinister. Probably more common is just like the ghosting thing of just like, mm. you know, that person is dead to us. Don't talk to that person you know, they, they left and you spread a bad story about them and they're persona non grata from now on. That's a, a bit uh, less sinister than what you're describing, but I think that's quite a, that's like a baseline, I would have said. Mm. There is at least one instance I can think of where it, where it hasn't been particularly a negative experience, and that's with Heaven's Gate. There were numerous members that were, were interviewed afterwards, including mm. one that I can't remember his name, but the experience he had was that he decided very close to the end, look, this isn't uh, this isn't working out for me. I've got a calling elsewhere. I think I can do some active good for the community by going. I think he ended up going to San Francisco um, in the end. And they parted on very good terms. And a lot of people that left the group, some actually left repeatedly. They left, then they realised, actually, I'm missing this, uh, missing the teachings, and they went back, and then they left again, and then they came back. So there was a definite welcoming back uh, kind of policy for them. Uh, but this, this guy I can remember that went to San Francisco, they parted on very good terms with uh, keeping in touch. And it was ultimately him that Applewhite sent the message to, to say, um, can you actually just pop down to the uh, the compound on this, uh, this particular date? And he, uh, with the video camera, and he was the one that was then effectively the documenter of finding, oh, the, uh, finding all the bodies there. But it was yeah. he. He saw it as oh, they've they've obviously departed. It's now my my job to get their to get their message out. Is he the one who still runs the website and answers emails if you email them? I think it is the same fella. Yeah, yeah. Because the website I'm looking at it right now. The website is still up and live with a very 1990s design. Yeah, there is a, a link to their email on there, and if you email them to this day, someone answers. And I don't know that that to me is really fucking creepy. Yeah, it's like he everyone's left and he's the last person keeping the lights on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a weird one, isn't it? So, I mean, with all the stuff we've talked about with real cults over the last few episodes, how much, if if any of this, do we think applies to cults in Call of Cthulhu? I think it's the putting a very real kind of grounding on things, because in games that I've played and some of the ways that cults are portrayed, they are very much just faceless mooks in robes with knives and that they have no mm -hmm. self-preservation instinct and they will just uh, they just exist purely to kill you. Whereas I think this puts a, a distinctly more human aspect on it and gives a face under those robes and gives people an idea of what could motivate people to go to such ends. But it is very much the way off the end of the bell curve extreme version that a cult could be. I don't think the game portrays them in a very realistic manner in that sense or such an outlier that it's completely unrepresentative. Yeah, I think playing cultists as a GM, you know, you're playing the cultists, portraying them, I think they often are, you know, like you're describing, Matt, sort of played as almost faceless mooks that 
you know, just follow mindlessly what their leader is is doing and, you know, are willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good or whatever. But yeah, I think considering these real world cults, I think is interesting because it, it just makes the cultists, if you like, more human. It makes yeah. them more real. It makes them more three-dimensional. And, you know, you are going to have some total adherence that see everything as black and white but you're going to have other people who are new who are you know questioning or who have been thrown out and are being harangued by the cult or you know lined up for murder or, or whatever so there's you know, when you look at all these things it, it stops it just being a simplistic body that you know a fictional mm simplification it makes it much more interesting yeah i mean it's it seems to me that in a, a lot of older scenarios particularly the cultists play much the same role that orcs used to play in DD, that they are disposable very obvious bad guys with no redeeming features who you can just kill mm. without conscience kobolds and yeah. And I think, yeah, treating them as human and treating them as victims in some cases. I mean, yeah, all right, you, you potentially have cult leaders and alien gods manipulating them and stuff like that. But, you know, treating them as ordinary people or vul worse, vulnerable people who have been drawn into all this and manipulated suddenly makes it a lot harder just to see them as, as kind of disposable nameless faceless baddies it's actually something i've been using in our the recent uh, run through of two-edged serpent that i've been doing with into the darkness that they've managed to capture uh, a serpent person that belongs to one of the main factions but having him as very much a reluctant member mm. and it's there seeing that oh yeah maybe, maybe all the uh, the mooks in this particular group aren't all just generic bad guys maybe some of them are here against their own uh, against their own volition and that they don't necessarily agree with what's going on now and it's making them think well do we actually go down and mow mow down all these people or do we actually sit and think about it for a bit hmm. yeah and i think through doing that you just create more interesting stories and similarly, I think having Call of Cthulhu scenarios in which you break away from the classic template of, you know, we are the investigators and we're here to destroy evil and whatever, and playing ordinary people who are caught up in some of these cultish manipulations. I've written at least one scenario that's borderline that case, but I think... If you talk in Call of Cthulhu terms about, oh, yeah, we're going to play the cultists, then immediately I think most people's minds will go to, okay, yeah, let's get on our robes, grab our knives, and we'll go around and we'll, we'll do rituals to summon our dark gods and so on. But I think playing a scenario in which you are just ordinary people you know, getting swept up in some of this madness is perhaps you know, a more delicate, poignant type of game, which, I mean, obviously isn't going to work for every group, but I think could pay huge dividends. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we would like to thank people by name, praise their names, for backing us on Patreon. First of all, however, we would like to thank everyone who is listening to the podcast, everyone who has backed us before. But we are here to say thank you especially to these people. Yep, a big thanks going out to Pete Shanahan. And also thanks to Starsky Stewart. And thank you very much to Kevin Salonen. And thanks to Shane Hotterkainen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. And also thanks to B.A. Tozak. And thank you very much to Brian H. And thanks to Nicola Logan, who... Uh, Alan Carey of Type 40, of uh, all the, um, the wonderful props and so on, kindly backed us on behalf of his wife. Also, thanks to Yane Newton, and I'm very much hoping I got the pronunciation right again there. And thank you very much to Austin Tyra. And thanks to the wonderfully named The Dunwich Horror. And also, thanks you, thank you very much to the singular Eric. And thank you very much to Victor Colon de Dendaniarina. And any one of you whose names we've horribly mangled, and I'm sure there are a number of you this, this episode, please get in touch if you would like us to say your name again and uh, perhaps do a better job of it. But, but yes, thank you. Just a, a footnote. It's interesting, having lived in Britain all my life, 
there are so many names in the world that I haven't come across. I mean, obviously, I do come across, you know, other names than, you know, Brian, Phil, Sean, you know, just like names like 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 that. Um, but um, it's such a, yeah, it's such a, a world of, of names out there, which we can use in our games as well. I just, you know? I just thought everyone else was called Bob. Yeah, they're not. They're not. <laughs> yeah, it's a failing on my part that, you know, I feel I don't know... How to pronounce so many of these words. Well, this is the end of our look at real-world cults. We haven't quite finished with cults yet. We're going to do uh, an episode about a cultish film or a film about cults. And then I think we'll probably come back to perhaps talking about the Cthulhu cult or just even the way cults are represented in Lovecraft. Because, you know, as we've touched upon, this is a very different thing than real cults. You mean we've got to keep these robes on for another few episodes yet? Yeah, I mean, you can wash them, you know, in between episodes. And, well, I mean, it's probably not as important now that we're not all recording the same room, but it's probably still courteous to do so. Matt's still got a camera. It's still important. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And once again, he is the only one of us in an actual robe. (laughs) So, yes, Matt, yes, you do have to keep the robe on. Oh, great. It's like a sweat box in here. (laughs) This is where all our listeners are so thankful that this isn't a video podcast. Oh, yeah. There's no Patreon level for that. (laughs) And please, no one suggest it, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that's all the the cultist madness we have time for this week. So, until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Oh, God.